Welcome to Greatness, where the world's leading thinkers share their ideas about how to create greatness, great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. Why be good when you can be great? This is Gretchen Gagel with Greatness Consulting. I'm so thrilled today to um, welcome Tanya Hammond to our Greatness podcast. I would describe Tanya is somebody that I've met over here in Australia that's very passionate about people and talent and teams and leaders um, through her consulting work and her doctoral studies. And so anyway, Tanya, welcome to Greatness. Thank you, Thank you very much, Gretchen. It's great to be here. We, um, the first time that you and I connected, um, I was introduced, well, actually, I think we met each other in an Australian Institute for Company Directors cocktail party, if I... Yep remember correctly, I, I meet some of my most interesting um, people here in Australia over drinks. And we were talking about a course that I was teaching in strategic HR at uh, the Australian National University at the time. And, and you and I followed up with a coffee to really talk about talent and the building of talent um, within great teams and great organizations and the role that great leaders play in accomplishing that. So share with us some of your philosophies about what makes um, what makes great leaders out there. I think the most important one are the people who, great leaders for me and the ones that I've met are calm, considered, are able to share their vision again and again. Um, and I, I guess at the end of the day, care more about people than themselves, if that makes sense. Um, I've, mm-hmm. I've noticed most leaders I've worked with that I could genuinely say, wow, I, I want to work with you forever, are those kind of people. They, you don't have to guess what they're thinking because they they tell you what they're thinking and they just, yeah, people matter to them. And I think that's a really interesting thing when you observe the talent um, around them as well because they attract great people because they're great pe- great people, if that makes sense. And one of the things that's been interesting for me as I'm continuing to teach leadership and consult to leaders is how do you develop that in leaders? You know, is that is that something that, you know, are some of these just innate core value things that that we bring along or 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 can we teach people to be transparent, genuine leaders? Um, that's a hard question. And uh, I think one that I I sat and thought about when I worked at the Australian National University, one of the courses that I taught was the um, the leadership skills in the MBA program. And it's, it struck me very early in the piece that, you know, I can't, I couldn't stand there and just, you know, spill all these wonderful things and, and hope that it would sink in and they would be changed people. And so I guess I came at it from a very different perspective and my light bulb moment really went off very, very early on around you've just got to get them to understand themselves um, and to build some good practices around how they do that, um, not being afraid to ask. There's some authors that did some really good work, Zenger and Falkman, and I was quite interested in their research um, because I think sometimes we create this leader as being this awesome, you know, person that's great at everything. And their research really found that it was not so much about being great at any, everything, but being really great at one thing. I guess their analogy was more or less a tent. And in the middle of the tent, um, you know, is a pole. And that pole is about their integrity. 
And, you know, obviously the tent's not going to go up if the integrity isn't isn't there. Um, and then there are other aspects of the tent, you know, around managing results and, you know, being the expert and, you know, there's several others that, you know, just escapes me at the moment. But but I think that was really big thing for me, Gretchen, was to give the materials to provide the framework um, to those people that really wanted to lead. And it was so awesome to have the journey to step back and then watch these people and, and several I'm still in contact with. They're really different from when I first met them because in my mind they understood their, themselves and their impact on others. It was pretty profound. Mm. So, yes, I think you can but I think that individual needs to be very much open to learning and open to feedback. Mm -hmm. Well, you've touched upon so many different things. I had um, Christine Zeitzen as a, as a guest speaker in my leadership and teams course, the CEO of, of Lidos Australia. That's what she started with as well is you have to understand, you have to understand yourself as a leader first Mm. and really be able to take that time to be reflective about what where your skills are but I love also your analogy about that tent pole yeah and and integrity being kind of that that primary tent pole for the leader yeah and I, I remember a speaker once um I think it was he was the vice chancellor of ANU and he described he was talking to leadership um young leadership group of students and he described, you know, he just said a really simple thing, a good thing about high integrity and being an honest person is you don't have to worry about what you said to anyone. That, that's such a great comment. I'm going to have to remember to um, share that with my um, leading with integrity course at, at the University of Denver. We spent a lot of time talking about in, integrity, obviously, in that course um, and ethics, et cetera. So talk to me then about how this great leadership transcends into great teams and great organizations. What is what is it that these leaders are doing to create these great teams of people and develop their talent? You talked about attracting that that talent. Yeah, and I think that's definitely been my observation is that, you know, great leaders attract great people. And that obviously doesn't always happen by, you know, chance. Um, I, I think something that's really been um, a big lesson for me is that, you know, and Amy Edmondson's work is, is profound in this place, that they create a, an environment that's safe, that there's that psychological safety, that people can be honest, just like the leader, to be able to talk about things, uncover risks, talk about um, stuff that probably, you know, might be difficult. And um, and that's been my big observation is the the safety and the and the honesty that people can have in the relationship. That's that's really clear. And and I think the other thing is just um, I guess my my earlier comment around just this calmness, Gretchen. You know, obviously we get stressed and anxious at times when things kind of don't go how they you know how we intended it to be and but even in that sort of moment there's just this calmness and and I guess the team just knowing I I worked for a wonderful leader I'm very early in my career and she you know just had this really beautiful philosophy that she always had our back Mm. and you know what we did some really in hindsight, um, kind of not too smart things, but she wanted us to try things. She wanted us to really go out on the edge and go, okay, this is something really different. Um, 
in how we recruit or how we develop people or whatever. And she was so comfortable to stand in front of the board and go, you know what, yep, that didn't work, mm-hmm. but this is what we're doing differently. And so they have your back, they have um, a calmness, they create an environment where you flourish and kind of almost in a selfish way, it's not about them. Mm-hmm. It's about the team and about the people's success. Um, and and really, as I mentioned earlier, so clear about vision, you know, and, and you can you align to them around their vision and their purpose and, you know, where they want to take the organization. Yeah. It's I want to touch upon a couple of those things and unpack them a little further. So you talk about the calm. And um, I was just sitting here thinking, you know, one of my favorite books on leadership, um, James McGregor Burns, back in 1978, his great book, Leadership, talks about leadership being grounded in in kind of that military background. And I was thinking about the movie Saving Private Ryan somehow just popped into my mind. I haven't seen it in years, but uh, Tom Hanks as, as the leader of that group of people that is in the middle of a war trying to find a person is that epitome of calm. He is, he epitomizes that in this movie that literally through gunfire and, you know, seeming disaster, et cetera, nothing rattles him in this, in this movie. And, and I think that's a really good point too, because um, uh, when I, one of the things that, you know, obviously you're very similar in that regard too is that you like to sort of share some ideas and some stories. And um, when I talk about teams, I often show that um, there's a couple of scenes in Apollo 13 which are so profound, funnily enough, also Tom Hanks, but about mm-hmm. bringing together a bunch of people calmly to get the um, Apollo 13 back to earth. But just the movie epitomises, you know, when teams work very, very well together, you bring those expertise together, you let people flourish, you you foster that. But, again, you know, that calmness, it's just, yeah, it's quite, I don't know, it's really real, Gretchen, and, and that's when you sort of step back and go, wow, they're, they're a great leader. Yeah, it's interesting. Back when I was president of the Women's Foundation, we had to move our luncheon for 2,600 people by a week or by a day. Wow. Um, Maybe it was either a week or a day. Uh, Kathy Najimy was our guest speaker, and she was filming a a series called West Wing at the time, and her filming schedule changed. And everyone just went into like this complete panic mode. and And I sat them all down and I said, nobody has cancer. You know, this is this is a luncheon and we're going to move it by a week. And here's all the, you know, let's brainstorm what we need to do to get 2,600 people in a different week. Um, and it all worked out fine. But just um, also pointing out the, the relevant importance of whatever. Everybody's still alive. Yeah. You know, we're we're going to get through that. But I think that's... Um, you know, I'm a big proponent now of neuroscience and understanding the amygdala and yeah. amygdala hijacks. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I'm working on as a leader is how do you continue to have that pause button? How do you, how do you, how are you calming yourself such that you're in a position as a leader to calm others? Yeah. And, and I think that um, neuroscience is, is quite important. And for me, that's kind of where, um, you know, Amy Edmondson's work also connects just in that kind of psychological 
component as well. And I think that's the best thing about where um, I suppose it's not management theory, Gretchen, but it's like we've opened ourselves up so much more to be about the the humanness of work and the and you know I've spoken recently and quite a bit about the fact that the future of work is about humans you know instead of running around with our hair on fire oh my god technology is going to lose our jobs it's like well it's actually going to create I think a much better work environment and work context um but but you know we now our our spotlight is on the employee experience and which is so different from where I started in HR in the 80s which was homogeny you know everything was about the same everyone was in inverted commas equal um we did you know same recruitment same development blah 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 but now it's it's very much about the customer their experience and the employee and their experience so it's um and to be i think in a great leader in that it's it's those people acknowledge that and take the time to get to know their people and mm-hmm. and really know what they want out of life because work's a big part of life we're using Edgar and Peter Shine's new book, Humble Leadership, yeah. that was published last year yeah. in our leadership course at the University of Denver and talking about these level two relationships yeah. that you build with people. Personization is the term that Edgar Shine's come up with about yeah. you know, creating those real relationships with people. And it's it's really a great path that we're that we're taking, which links into another thing you were talking about, about failure and psychological safety. And I think that's another thing I've seen leaders struggle with is they say to their troops, to their team, it's okay to fail, but they can't get people to actually, to enable experimentation. What have you seen around this area and leaders really creating this psychological safety and this ability to say, yeah, we're going to try some things that don't work and that's okay. We're going to learn from those. Yeah. And I think from my experience, Gretchen, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell's work. Um, I ha- I love where he, he genuinely talked about start with two people. And that's where I see the power of people being able to go, okay, let's give this a try. Let's start with two people. And, you know, I, I guess people do believe what they see people do rather than what, you know, people say. That's That mm-hmm. just seems to be true, right? And and I think what I've observed is where, where that risk-taking happens is that clarity around what is the culture that we need for that to happen. And what do we need to build in our people and genuinely enable that to happen? Because often it's a said thing, but there's so many barriers to it, which, you know, it might be about the structure, it might be about the tools, it might be a whole bunch of other drivers. But, you know, what I've observed is the leader looks at what are those barriers? How do I create that culture? But let's just start with two people. And let's mm-hmm. build then that that risk culture from there, um, and where people will observe. Uh, actually, they've still got the jobs, um, right? And they failed, but they're still okay, you know. So it's kind of I think I think we try to start too big, and I think what Malcolm Gladwell's research and work, you know, has some um, really inspired me to do is just just take one start from where you are one step at a time two people can work from there well and it's it's so i think of that video the first follower video where the guy is dancing out in the field 
And it's really, it's not about the person that starts it. It's about the first follower that joins in. Yes. I'm going to do this. Um, But the other key point, and I stress this so much with my students and clients is people are watching you as a leader. As you said, they're, it's not about what comes out of your mouth. It's your actions and do they reinforce that? And the tiniest little signal that you can be completely unaware of having sent to your team can disrupt so much that you're trying to convey out of your mouth. And you mentioned culture. So let's talk about uh, organization culture. And and I mentioned Edgar Schein, who's obviously one of the most respected scholars when it when it talks comes to talking about culture and artifacts and espouse values and shared beliefs. So are we focusing enough on organization culture when it comes to creating great organizations? I don't believe we have. I don't think we have sufficiently. And and I think something that we've shared um, and discussed in the past too is, you know, I've been on a number of boards and, you know, often there'll be this conversation and it'll be about things that have happened and, and I'll, I will at the time say, okay, that's an organisational culture issue. That's a red flag for me. I think we need to dig deeper and, and understand what, what drove that, what, what enabled that to happen and what really is genuinely rewarded and what is genuinely punished. And, and I think Edgar, Edgar Stein's work, he's just helped us, I suppose, with his theory but also kind of, you know, he's just, it's very practical. It's it's very um, applicable and and easy to apply a lot of his kind of thinking. Um, and I think from an organisational culture perspective, what I've observed is that organisations are now starting to think of it. Sadly, it takes several royal commissions in our country for things like our banks um, were under the spotlight last year, and the Hain Royal Commission um, really pointed out that you know what you were rewarding behaviours that were actually counterproductive and, and really bad for your business um, and bad for your customers. And I, and I think now the conversation is changing so that boards are actually asking those questions. Is our culture fit for purpose? Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, it takes those kind of crises um, to unfortunately cause it. But, you know, from my my personal perspective, it's fantastic because it's a conversation that needed to happen long before it has. You know, how do we know our culture is fit for mm-hmm. purpose? How do we know what we espouse and they're in reality? And as I said earlier, what is rewarded? What is punished? Why do people do the things they do? You know, I think big thing for me too is really about that history and being so clear about where you've come from, what what ensured your success and your sustainability in the past. But with VUCA, that's not going to be the case into the future necessarily, right? So we've got to always have that, I think, a culture, the conversation around culture. It's so interesting that you're talking about what we reward. I sat down, uh, gosh, probably a year ago with the CEO of a very large global organization who was three years into trying to make a significant change in the culture of his organization. And, And one of the first questions I asked him was, have you, well, how did you change your reward system? And I kind of got a bit of a blank stare and I'm like, well, you know, if you're still rewarding for the same behaviors, then you're not going to change behaviors, right? We've got to, we've got to look at the whole system that people are operating within and what they get rewarded to do. So that that's such a great point. 
And as you said, in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, um, there's even more of a need to have a conversation about culture. So I'm, if I'm the CEO of an organization, how do I go about assessing my current culture? Like, what do we do to learn about where we are currently about in our culture and what we like about it, what we don't like about it, et cetera? What does that look like? I think it's very much around saying, um, I'm going to take time out to observe and to ask why. And to be able to to understand why are people, you know, talking to a customer like this or a manager or a peer or, you know, just just to take that time out, become that, is it ethnographer? You know, just a, a person who takes time out to observe, to then sit back and gather people around you to ask why and to make sense of it. I think... I think often it's useful to get a person from the outside to come in or ask a new person um, who's joined the organisation to to help in those reflections because I think the thing with culture which is just so real is that it embraces you. It's so pervasive. You actually don't often become so much a part of what you do that you actually don't understand or appreciate that. It's a norm. But you haven't asked the question why. You, mm-hmm. It becomes it becomes you. Your culture is strategy. Strategy is, strategy is culture, and and I think it's also a really good idea to to reflect. Um, you know, both at the change. You know, where you want to make some change to a business, taking that time out to to check in on the, what what you want it to be and where it is in reality. Because if you don't, then if you try and sort of create any sort of change whether in your, you know, the way that you're steering your strategy or the transformation you're trying to create, you're just going to miss it because the biggest barrier is your, is your culture potentially and it could work completely counterproductive to where you need to take the organisation. So, um, yeah, that would be my advice. First spend some really critical time observing and then sitting down and asking why. Yeah, I love the word why. I'm it's my favorite one of my favorite words in the whole world. So um we don't use it enough, I don't think. Um and it's it is really interesting with a um client a couple of years ago Edgar Schein talks about artifacts and the physical yeah. manifestations of our culture. So we took a team of leaders within an organization and we sent them out for a half an hour to take pictures that they thought res- represented their culture. And we asked, why did you take a picture of that? What words come to mind when we look at, we put it on a slideshow? And it was so fascinating. This is a group of engineers and and being an engineer myself, I know sometimes if we just sit down and say, let's talk about culture, everybody just looks like you like, okay, great, awesome, whatever. But using words to describe these pictures, we had such rich, deep conversations about what they represented in their culture and then what they liked about their culture and what they didn't like about their culture and what they prioritized as areas that they might need to change. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fantastic exercise. Um, A great idea, Gretchen, because it's sort of, it's, it's trying and and I guess starting with pictures um, makes a lot of sense, but also, you know, starting with words, you know, if we if we think about where the organisation is and where we want to take it, what culture is going to be fit for purpose? How does that look? How would I describe it? What would be going on? How would people be interacting and treating each other and behaving? What does that look like? Um, and I think that's that's then part of that ability to to 
I guess, articulate then your vision. Well, in, in my, um, my PhD studies around leadership and agility, one of the things that became apparent in, in all the research around agility is this kind of flat organization and having as many touch points to the external environment as possible and not having leaders that are kind of sitting in their ivory tower thinking, oh, not, not being isolated from things. And I read a, a really great article recently about a CEO who he and his senior leadership team uh, he or she sat down in a call center and took customer calls for 10 straight hours well to really be connected in in a very real way a to the employees that are working in that call center so they have empathy for what their job looks like but to the customers and what what we're hearing from the customers and it was just this phenomenal experience for them mm yeah, like I, I, and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Just get to know your people, get to know your customers, spend time immersing yourself in the genuine reality of this is the day-to-day lives of a whole bunch of really important employees. Mm-hmm. Um, just makes sense to me. And, and I think you can't do that from behind your desk. No, no. It takes me back to my days of uh running manufacturing plants out of engineering school, especially um, being transferred to upstate New York, taking over a baby food plant and um, not really knowing what I was doing, A, because I'd never run one of those before, but um, spending so much time out on the floor talking to people and, and, and just really genuinely listening to them. So where our time is coming to an end here, Tanya, I, I'm sure our, our listeners will be interested. So We've talked about a lot of different things. We've talked about org culture and um, creating, you know, being a calm leader and creating psychological safety and this ability that people feel like they can fail and, you know, the VUCA world that we're all experiencing, this increased complexity. And if you, you know, if you were going to say one or two tips to our listeners out there that... I'm, I'm really trying to develop myself as a, as a leader and I'm really trying to develop great teams of people. What should I be focused upon? And, and I know that's a hard question to answer, but how do I, how do I spend my time? I think my first is always about first understand yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, um, that can be a bit confronting um, at times. So first understand yourself and the impact that you have on others. And understand the areas where you, you're really good at, you know, and people um, people agree that you're really good at it. So part of that understanding yourself is you're going to have to ask people around you and um, to give you honest feedback. I'm not necessarily a great proponent of 360-degree feedback. I think sometimes it's so far removed from the person. So I really think you've got to have some courage to understand yourself and then take steps to make yourself greater and even better in that space. Um, and I think first and foremost, take time to observe and to ask why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, I read a great HBR article a couple of years ago on how CEOs spend their time. And one of the things the article pointed out that everybody's trying to spend more time in reflection and finding that time to observe and reflect and ask why, and um, not just be busy all the time as leaders, right? Mm-hmm. That um, it's really about reflection. Well, Tanya, so many 
brilliant ideas. I, I always love speaking with you because I think, um, I think that I know that your thinking around these ideas is incredible. And I feel so fortunate to have met you over here in Australia. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Gretchen. It's been a pleasure. Interested in hearing more? Visit us at greatnessconsulting.com. Thank you.